Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, our live subscriber edition of our second episode here. Uh, I am your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Crows. And I want to welcome everyone in our audience here to, that's joining us for the recording of this episode. Um, as a reminder, uh, you know, AOC has, we have launched the subscription AOC member benefit, uh, which is two additional episodes a month that are available to AOC members and subscribers only. So you have to be one or the other. Of course, if you're an AOC member, it's a, it's a member benefit. You'll get a free, free subscription. Um, if you're not an AOC member, uh, you will, you just have to pay $2.99 a month and you will be able to join us not only for the to download these additional episodes, uh, but also participate and join us in the recording of them. Um, also, just to kind of let everyone know how this, how this works, um, these episodes are going to be a little bit more informal. Um, we'll have a little bit more informal conversation with subject matter experts um, and talk a little bit more about news of the day versus uh, specific topics that you you might find in our regular episodes. Um, right now, for the next couple of weeks, we are letting these episodes be available to the public, free for everyone to kind of let them know what we're doing, but they will be going behind a firewall soon. So uh, we we uh, encourage you to either become an AOC member today or uh, listen up, listen out for uh, additional information on when the subscription uh payment system is up and running and this these episodes will go behind the, the the paywall so with that i'd like to welcome everyone here um behind the camera not on the screen i want to give a shout out to vox topica studios uh, our, our consultant company that does a great job of putting on all of our front from the coast nest episodes uh, we have laura working the chat room as well as ish our sound engineer and then with me today my special guests uh, for our discussion are Matt Thompson, AOC's subject matter expert and senior analyst, and of course, John Knowles, the editor-in-chief of AOC's Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance. Matt, John, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, yeah, it's Ken. good to be back. So before we get started, just wanted to kind of let everyone know so that if you are in the audience, uh, we do encourage participation. Uh, from our perspective, we can't see you in the in the audience. Uh, we just see a, a, a general number of how many people are in there. So if you can take some time, Go to the chat. Let us know you're here. Uh, we'll see who you are. And of course, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to enter them in the chat or comments. And then Laura uh, from Vox Topica, she'll help uh, kind of you know, interject or interrupt the, the conversation. Let us know when there's a question that, that comes up that we want to address. But the idea here is to actually have a conversation with the audience as well. So please do not hesitate to share your thoughts, uh, to share your questions, and we'll get to as many as we can uh, during the time that we have with us. So, you know, I think just to begin, you know, gentlemen, it's been about a couple of weeks since we've uh, last talked. Um, what has been on your mind here recently? I know for myself, it's been the the uh, the congressional defense budget. It's been heating up. Uh, but before we get to that, and, you know, I just wanted to kind of put that out there. What are some of the things that you've been looking at specifically over the last couple of weeks that have uh, piqued your interest? And I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Matt. Yeah, so a few things. You know, one, uh, I've been working on the... Uh the workshop, the EW workshop here in the San Antonio area that I'm sure that we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, I saw a couple of pretty interesting articles. Uh, you know, the cyber command chief has changed. So I think that's kind of a big deal. Uh, obviously, there's quite a few budget discussions that are going around that I'm sure we'll tap on a little bit today. Uh, and I've just seen a few like different, you know, GPS and kind of EW things throughout the uh, throughout the environment. So there's a few things we can talk about. Yeah, and we're going to, we will talk about each of those. Uh, and why... Since you did bring it up, you know, I wanted to, before we get to John, I wanted to let you talk a little bit about this uh, March workshop that we're having down in San Antonio. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, you know, AOC has uh, has been working closely with uh, Naval Weapons Station Crane 
to kind of do a partnership to uh, a, a long-term study that's going to involve workshops and and roundtables and other sorts of uh, collaborative events uh, to kind of Im- uh, look, take a deeper dive into a number of topics of affecting the future of EW and radar technology. Uh, our first one uh, is going to be on March 5th down in San Antonio, and Matt is putting that together for us. Yeah, so there's a few things. Uh, you know, I've been working on it for uh, about a month now, maybe about five weeks, and uh, I've found out some really key information. Uh, one, there are, is a significant uh, number of EW assets, both industry, academia, and, and DOD here, um, which is very exciting. It's, you know, it's a pretty good hub of, of information, but it's also one that I think is uh, pretty siloed. Uh, so we're definitely going to take a little bit of a foundational approach with the, uh, the first workshop. You know, try to get all those same players in the same room talking uh, and really like try to solve a, a few small problems, get a few presentations about, you know, different capabilities that exist. And, and really, I think the first workshop is going to be, as you said, kind of a one day event to try to start the conversation and kind of lay the groundwork for, you know, future collaboration, make sure that we all the players meet each other and know who they are. Uh, so that's really going to be a, the intent and drive of the first one, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and John, I wanted to bring you in because, you know, you and I have, we, we go back 20 years or so. We've always sure. had conversations just around pretty much every major study report that's come out in the EW world. Um, you're talking about the, the positives as well as kind of the negatives of these reports and stuff and so forth. And, and, and it's our purpose is to put out something that actually does move the conversation forward. So, you know, from your, from your vantage point, um, you're looking at what, what do we really need to be, what would really make this conversation a success in your mind in terms of what would you want to hear from the EW community when we're talking about, you know, for example, for training and some of the other topics that we're going to be t- discussing at this workshop? What are some of the things that we really need to be tackling from your perspective that we might have missed in previous uh, uh, reports and studies? I think within the community, I think we, we're, we've done a pretty good job of understanding what we need to do. Uh We've, you know, technology is definitely driving most of the change inside the community. I think it's, I always go back to the conversation we have outside the community, right? With, with leaders and others to get them to, to but inside I'd say, um, I, I take a lot of cues off the 350th, uh, Spectrum Warfare Wing and that they're thinking about software instead of hardware. They're thinking about, um, uh, uh, I think what Matt mentioned earlier, the, uh, you know, the training uh, getting involved with training, things like that. Just that, that I always felt that EW has, we have the piece parts, right? We have, we have developed very good piece parts, but, but the integration job, the way that we take some of our advanced stuff and get that into the system, things like that, where we probably need to do more of that so that, so that we can show commanders outside of our community, what we can do. And, and, and so it's that, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a mindset. Partly, it's partly, I think, uh, we have a lot of experience. We have a lot of new ideas coming in from younger people and getting that together, uh, I think, is the biggest thing. So, yeah, so I think just that's a great do- point. So I think that to your point, like, you know, we do a lot of stuff like behind the veil, behind the closed doors, uh, and we're probably not great about, you know, I was a product guy for a long time and and I can make the argument pretty, pretty easily that a lot of people didn't know what we did. Um, and we didn't really do a good job of saying, hey, here's some things that we can do for your services that we can provide. So I think, you know, there's definitely a gap between what we do in the EW world and, and what we can provide to other people. Uh, I definitely think that's one that can be addressed pretty much all the time. Do, do you see that that gap, that we are on the right path to closing that gap in any way? And you mentioned the the Spectrum Warfare wing. Um, they they released a, a news art, a news release here just uh, yesterday, I believe. Um, and And it's basically talking about it's the first time the Spectrum Warfare Wing uh, integrated with the Air Force Weapons School to provide students realistic pacing threats in the electromagnetic operational environment for their capstone exercise. Uh, sent around that article here. You know, are, are we on the right path? And, and, and is, you know, kind of talk to us about what you see developing here at the Spectrum Warfare Wing as an example. So I guess... I'm not in the mindset of the Spectrum Warfare Wing, so I don't want to talk for them too much. But but I love what they're doing in the sense that they're just getting involved with with again students. Something had never happened in the past. There was the operational world, there was the training world, and you know never the two shall meet. Um, and so again, it's 
it's sort of like eroding those stovepipes that are inside our community. They're not intentional. They just existed and we never really thought about them. So it's that new thinking to me that, again, you know, I've said to you times, but, you know, if you get five EW people in a room together, they will solve problems. They will mm-hmm. talk about problems. They will solve problems. If you can make that joint, if you can make that either inside a service. So again, it goes back to that idea from, I don't know, 10 years ago of, you know, why is there only one juke? Why isn't there an Air Force EW center? Why isn't there a, or a Spectrum Warfare Center inside the Air Force? I think the 350 had to start to fill that role a little bit there, but but they don't have everybody, you know, together there. The Navy had a fleet information warfare, or a fleet, you know, EW center. And I don't know, it's going you know, you know, where that's sort of evolved at N2 and 6, you know, gotten swallowed up in there. But the idea that, especially the army, right? There's like so many different EW communities in the army and and where they where do they connect and how do they connect? Because they're all in their respective, you know, army's kind of a schoolhouse model. You know, you come from artillery or fires, you come from comms, you come from the intel and and so aviation. And so who, who gets them together in a room inside that service? And then you go to the juke and I always thought the juke is kind of like graduate school for EWs, right? They army guys sitting next to a Marine, sitting next to an Air Force guy, and they meet all the time and they solve problems in that joint world. So not to like, you know, belabor it, but the, 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 in, the new ideas only will come out of people talking, out of, mm-hmm. out of groups getting together from their backgrounds. And that kind of Matt's point, you know, again, just, just getting them in a room. I'd love to be in that room, Matt, <laughs> with that <laughs> workshop, just, just pose them some well, problems. Yes, but no I also else, think I also think know. that's a high risk, high reward kind of scenario. So I'll, I'll, I'll use the weapon school example for one. You know, I've I've been in that scenario where the planning, the wars, you know, the war is happening for four days. Like, so they have an opportunity to show up and show that they can do the MBF and they can show value. But I think they also have the opposite problem, right? If they show up and they don't, and that like they don't bring any value, like then they're going to get shunned and they're probably not going to get invited back. So. So they really need to bring the A team that goes out the first time and they need to be ready to rock and roll because like that, that group of, you know, weapon school people, because that's the elite Air Force, right? Like we're not talking like middle management. We're talking like the guys that are going patchwork. Like they're not going to sit around and wait to see if that value is useful or not. They need to be ready to go when they show up. So, you know, I, I think, you know, potentially I think something like a red flag or something other than the weapon school might be like a better place to start. That's just my opinion. But you know that whoever they send out there, they better be locked and loaded. Well, yeah. I, I think we've I think we've seen in some of our conversations with the Spectrum Warfare Wing, they're pretty they're pretty they are pretty good at they have been very good at bringing their 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 A team to to some of the the the, the, the progress that they've made. Um, and so, uh, how would you Matt? How would you see this transition? So you like they're they're starting in the weapons school, um, yeah. and we we've talked and we had a conversation with them. Back in October, about red flag, and how how do you make that transition? How do you continue to build? Because I think one of the problems that we've always faced in the EW community is that persistence challenge in terms of uh, in in terms of change and progress. Where we start out really well for a year or two, things things seem good, and then something happens, whether it's a change in leadership or it's just a change in in priorities, we start to lose that traction, and then we uh, go into the background. How do we stay on the forefront? How do we continue to build, take, build these steps from the weapon school to a red flag and and beyond, so that we can can continue to push that envelope in training opportunities? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think two two things that you mentioned that I think are really important. One, you have to be persistent. Like we have to continue to come out there, show value, and learn as we go. Uh, then you have to also make sure that the leadership, because you said there will be leadership changes throughout there. Like they have to understand the value of that too as part of the process. So, you know, the way that we did it off in the Navy, we would bake that into our training, right? right? That piece is something you have to learn and know how to do, uh, you know, so we kind of made it like almost mandatory. Uh, and then I think the way that the, uh, you know, the 350th should do it is they should go to a weapon school and not do anything the first time except watch and learn like how that thing operates. Like not try to not try to participate, but really just kind of, see like how the beast because the beast is the same every time with a different group of students like every year so they should go and experience that and understand the pace and the the stress and all of that before they try to participate and then the next year like they should be ready to go so that's how i think is is a good approach i'd just like to add to one question which is instead of just doing it with the weapons school do it up and down the food chain 
right? So do it, do it at low stakes places, learn doing the higher stakes and higher stakes. So the weapon school is, is obviously a pretty high stakes place to go to Matt's point, but, but, but there's nothing that stops the, the 350th from going to other places and engaging. Um, they really do have their fingers in so many, I mean, in a bad way, but they have feelers out there across yeah. the operational community on the, you know, 87th DW aggressor squadron and all those, all those units that they have out there at pod shops and things like that. So their, their ability to, to kind of get out there and, and learn and find out what the community needs, they probably have their finger on the pulse of Air Force EW across corporate Air Force better than any other unit in a, any other organization. Yeah, and and they, you know they they have they certainly have a presence down obviously where they're based in, in you know in Eglin, but also in San Antonio they'll be um, I, I in some form or fashion I know we're we're looking we're trying to work with them to to get their you know presence at a workshop, but they have a presence there. Uh, Matt and I, we just they they were a topic of conversation. When we were out at the Compass Call uh, awareness visit uh, last month. Um, you know, every they are touching all the all the major pressure points, which is a which is a good a good sign. So applaud them for that. And I'm sure we'll talk to them more. Um, Matt and I are going down to Dixie Crow at the end of March. I think it's like March 25th, 6th, 7th, somewhere around that date. Um, we'll be both down there. Uh, I'll probably be doing some podcasting from the exhibit floor, but uh, ho- I know that they will have their strong uh, contingent there, and we'll we can probably follow up with a lo- with them a lot more. Um, so, so John, I wanted to to talk with you a little bit um, specifically. You know, in our previous chat, you know, we we always kind of talk about the defense budget, and one of the elements to as we talked about, kind of keeping that persistence in the EW realm is. The role of Congress, their their oversight, as well as their efforts to fund key programs or capabilities uh, throughout throughout the uh, NDAA or the annual defense funding bill. Um, we are here now in February, and things are starting to take shape a little bit in terms of at least deadlines, which in in congressional terms is just uh, has less weight now nowadays. The deadline the deadlines are just the next stop along the way to to kicking the can, but. Um, you know, we we still don't have a defense budget for 24. Uh, we ha- we are under a CR. The first batch of CRs will run out uh, on March 1st. Uh, the second batch of uh, defense appropriations bills and CRs for those, including the defense bill, is March 8th. Um, we are starting to kick off the NDAA process. I know that there's a lot that the House Armed Services Committee and the House and Senate has been putting out some deadlines for consideration of, of uh, you know, program support and requests and so forth. However, we don't have a budget yet. We don't have a budget from the president for 25, um, and that probably won't come anytime soon. Maybe I'm thinking, just my own hunch is probably going to be at least April. Uh, probably after this next round of deadlines that come in March. And, you know, it, based on talks now, it doesn't look like we're going to get uh, any sort of uh, defense bill or any sort of annual appropriations bills done. It's probably just going to be another CR uh, to the end of the year. Or at least I think that's at this point is the smart move is just get the CR to September 30th, the end, end of the fiscal year, you know, lick your wounds and then try to figure out what other, uh, what are the what other unfinished business you have to attend to? Uh, what are your thoughts when you're looking at kind of where things are at in the defense budget, the trends? Um, what else comes to mind in terms of how we need to, as a community, kind of shape our message into this reality, this new reality where we just don't really have a lot of certainty in defense funding these days. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that that uh, I, I worry about, and this is something we haven't quantified. I'm not sure how you do quantify it in the unclassified world, but but CRs impact test schedules. Mm-hmm. They're ultimately going to impact IOC for a number of programs that are be counted on to have ready by 2030, 2035. Yeah, those numbers that we always talk about. When is China ready to go after? Uh, you know, a, a larger footprint in the South China Sea uh, in the Asia Pacific region. So, so that to me is that, you know, we, we are pushing things down there to CR. It gives you money, but you don't get everything in your test program done. You don't get everything, yeah. you know, you're not, the testers don't just relax their standards because the money wasn't there to do all the testing. They delay the schedule. So what yeah. is the impact and how does that pile up across 
all the services with all of these programs. Well, and, and typically CRs will maintain prior year funding levels and prohibit anything that's new. So mm-hmm. if your if your program is at a point where you you need new money coming in, new uh, you're, you're you're either uh, you know jumping into a, a, another uh, level of development or some you need some sort of new money, you're not going to get that in a CR, which means you're going to lose six months to a year in your development. It's just going to sit there. And then, of course, you have the obsolescence aspect of like what happens when you pick it up a year later. Well, by then, there's a lot of other things that can happen. So, you know, with the CR, how how does Congress how how do you how 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 do you change this? I mean, we can't do that as a community, but I think we as a community we do need to be aware of those realities that we can't just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, next year we're going to fund this program or. Or this program is going to be IOC in 2026, 2027, because that's our plan. That's what we need. We aren't going to have a budget in 2024. We probably won't have one next year. I mean, if we can't get a defense budget done in an off year, there's no way in the world we're going to get one in a presidential and congressional election year. So, yeah. you know, it's it's likely we're talking, what, two years of a CR? I mean, like, how, how do you, how do you, maintain a level of readiness with with that, with that approach. Well, it's hard because it's going to affect your training. It's going to affect, again, most programs, to your point, you know, they have sort of, you know, waves of spending and where they're putting their money. If you're a company, you're keeping those engineers, a team of engineers that you may have wanted to use for next, the next program. Some of them are going to be stuck still dealing with slow trickle of funding coming in. It's going to, it makes everything harder. It makes everything slower. It, it, it has just tremendous cascading effects down the road. And in it, that, that it doesn't matter how much money put in, in say to the 2026 budget, you're not, you, you can't, you can't make up for all of that lost time, all of that lost schedule, all of that lost IOC, you know? And so, so it, it, and the thing for us at least is we have so many EW programs going right now. Mm-hmm. So it's not just like one or two programs that are going to get impacted. It's a bow wave that gets pushed out, you know, into the it much later. And again, we were counting, I think our, our co-coms were counting on capabilities that might have to turn into QRCs or mm-hmm. urgent needs statements that should have been program a record. And then we're going to beat up BW for being too expensive because we did it mm-hmm. as a QRC urgent operational need. And so, and, and, and you had you, you I, I think it was probably ten years ago at this point. You did a briefing before the congressional staff, and you kind of showed how the QRC, like the, the the amount that we spend on QRC, and the impact that that has on the overall funding for EW. And this was kind of, I guess, coming out of like you know, obviously Afghanistan and Iraq in the in the in the early two thousands or in the in the two thousands through early twenty tens. Uh, you mentioned that you know this is a lesson that we know we've known for 10, 15 years. Um, we just have to do a better job of quantifying it. Uh, Matt, you know, like John and I obviously can talk forever, so I don't want to, you know, leave you out of anything. So like, you know, do you have any thoughts in terms, I mean, you're, you're, you're a war fight, you're a war fighter. Um, you've, you've, uh, been a part of these funding cycles from a user standpoint, operational standpoint. What are your thoughts in terms of what our community needs to be thinking about as we go into these uncertain budget times? Yeah, so I think it's a, I think it's always a challenge because I think like the long term things like they're funded, right? Like we know we're going to buy like Compass Call, we know that's happening, but I don't think that's where we get hurt. I think we get hurt in like near term, like real time things that are happening, like adversarial things, you know, that we would like to be doing research on that we wish we had some capital to refund search, like and we don't. So then that money shows up, but we've probably like missed that window. That's that's really where I see. Um, so, you know, as much as it's, it sounds cliche sometimes, you know, one of the times that I found that we had the best procurement cycle and got the, you know, the most help is when we were in Afghanistan doing some different work than we'd done before, right? Like that window gets really small and then suddenly there's money available. But if you don't have that kind of push, like that money just keeps getting kicked to the right and, mm-hmm. and we don't develop new things. And then we find ourselves, you know, tactically farther behind than we want to be. Well, and, and, you know, it seems to be the, 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 the chosen path these days now is just, you know, a series of emergency supplementals or emergency funding bills that kind of, you know, f- 
they, they fund certain programs, uh, procurement of certain items and weapons. You know, obviously, like a large percentage of this money that quote unquote goes to the war in Ukraine or goes to any other hotspot, it never actually leaves our borders to the U.S. It, it goes gets kicked back into industry to fund critical programs and stockpiles and so forth. But that seems to be a very uh, kind of a fallback. Uh, way of funding a lot, keeping the funding going in the defense sector. doesn't seem like it's a smart way of doing it, but it seems like the only way of doing it. Um, what are you seeing in terms of some of the the funding packages that are being put together, the emergency supplemental bills that, uh, you know, what are some of your thoughts on, on how we're approaching that? And are we really, um, what, what, what uh, programs or capabilities might we need to be looking at adding to those in the, in the future if we don't get a budget? Yeah, so I want to jump on something else before John answers that question, because I, I, I sent you guys that article I saw the other day where Lockheed Martin is basically yeah. pushing back on fixed contracts. They're like, hey, what happens is, you know, all this other stuff they want to do, they're trying to add into this fixed contract because we're not funding it, right? right. So the, the big companies are like, we're not going to do that anymore. Like, we're losing tons of money, you know, and that kind of referenced the uh, the Boeing KC-46 tanker program, which is like $7 billion over like the original 46 and that just happens because we're not funding all of these other things correctly, so they get tacked onto those big bills. So I think that's an interesting discussion that's going to maybe push the needle on that. Uh, but I'll turn it back over to John. Well, well and also before John, you know, like there, we had a comment in the audience. You know, a lot of this is really having a dramatic effect on small businesses, um, and to the point that sometimes they won't recover because they are very dependent upon, uh, at least in the the early stage, you know, getting that money coming in on a on a regular predictable basis so the cr is having a huge impact on small businesses so thank you for uh, the audience member contributing that comment yeah i think that that to me the 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 impact on on we see the we see the sort of the end product and the programs and the test schedules and things like that but but i was talking a little bit about the effect on industry the effect on the systems house like a ba north or whatever that's they they've got some reserves and, you know, they've, they've got the ability to, to go get financing for the small businesses. You're basically, you know, there's no bailout for you. There's no other work. You're probably living off of a handful of contracts at any one time. You're thinking about keeping the doors open six months from now. <laughs> you don't, most small companies don't do five, 10 year plans because it changes so much. So what they'll probably do, a lot of them, to, to go to safer waters is they'll just tack into the commercial sector. And this is where the DOD, they want, they want the, the upside of, of commercial technology and commercial companies and companies, you know, the DIU and all those things, right? But, but the, 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 the other side of that is those companies can vote with their feet mm-hmm. and they can just go focus on on the telecoms industry and 5G and all the rollout that's going there. And those are as competitive as that is, the money's gonna get to you faster in your contract. And and there's more stability there, ironically, and a more competitive environment because the the spending is gonna happen. You just wanna get your share of it. And the DOD right now, it's maybe a smaller pool of competitors that can actually withstand going through the government contracting process and all that. but. If the money doesn't come to you, that's that is a existential problem for you as opposed to losing a couple of contracts on the commercial side, but there's always something else to go after. And so if the tap gets turned down, not off, but down uh, for money, then then that that just you're creating an environment where you're telling industry across the vertical, right? Not just the systems houses, but all the way down the food chain to the components and subsystems guys. You know, we're not really that interested in your problems because we're not creating a, a reserve fund for you. You know, we're, we just don't have money. And so- Yeah, and I, so, I think we're also like making some assumptions, right? Like on the on the Congress, like DOD side, we're assuming they're just always going to be there. Like, you know, without any incentive, like, hey, I'm going to pick up the phone and they're going to answer and say, cool, let me jump on that. And, and I think that's a pretty big assumption that, you know, that's kind of what the article was highlighting. Like, hey, we, we're not there anymore. Like, we're, we're going to start driving away from just hanging out, waiting for you to call. Like, it's not a good business model. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems 
Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Um, so so I wanted to, uh, you know, we, we got to about like half of the conversational topics from the the, uh, the in the last episode. So I did promise that we would cover a little bit more this 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 time around, um, you know. But there there were a couple of developments that took place over the last couple of weeks, um, and so I wanted to to kind of jump on that. And you know, we'll we'll probably be continue to talk about the congressional piece in in, in episodes to come. I know I do know I'm going to have Force of DC, our congressional consultants, on here in a, in a few weeks, and we'll get really into the the nuts and bolts of what's going on. So that'll be good. Um, but Matt, I wanted to go to you because you you you. Uh, sent around an article to us, uh, and you mentioned this at the top of the show, uh, about a change in command at Cyber Command. Um, General Timothy uh, Haig takes, takes the lead of NSA and Cyber Command uh, from General Nekasoni. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, that development and kind of what you think that means for, for our, our community? Well, so I think it's a, I think it's a couple things. One, uh, transitioning, I think, from an Army guy to an Air Force guy. It doesn't really sound like it's a big deal, but I think that it pretty, pretty much is, especially if you look at the uh, the resume for the new person. Like, he's from the 16th Air Force. Like, he's got a pretty substantial, like, cyber DW background. Uh, you know, I think he's pretty, uh, you know, he's pretty tight with the 350th. So I think there's going to be a pretty significant push to continue to that persistence that we were looking for earlier, uh, as we kind of talked, uh, you know, earlier in the podcast. I think that, like, he sounds like, on paper, the guy that's going to keep that push going. So, so I think that would be very beneficial to the EW community as he kind of takes over that role. Yeah. And he also, if you go into his resume too, he, he went to SIG at officer's course first thing, 92, mm -hmm. when he, when he first put on uh uniform. So it, it, he, he's been doing this for a while and he probably has more cyber uh, and EW and SIG experience than 
previous commanders just because of the assignments he's had throughout most of his career. And uh, he's, he's an interesting guy. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's got, uh, you know, if you look at, he's only published a couple of papers, but I took a look at some of those. And, and one of them is just, he did a lot of work in information warfare as well. So he's, he's you know, not just about technology, he understands the application of yeah. it. And under, he just has a really, a very dynamic background. Yeah. Not that the previous and, people didn't, but he just has more of that cyber background. And, and then, of course, you'll have that trickle-down effect because, you know, he's he's going to be moving to a d- different position. Then you have other people filling in where he's at, and that, that trickle-down of, of leadership is going to be important. And and obviously, you know, he's going to co- bring in a culture that he brought into the um, – uh, into the 16th Air Force. So, I mean, like there's going to be changes that are made. I think that could be positive. Um, what are some of the, you know, just generally speaking with U.S. Cybercom, you know, what are some of the positives or, or some of the questions or, or talking points that you think need to be addressed in terms of the role that you, Cybercom is playing in our, our EW community? That's a hot button <laughs> issue. So I'm like, I, I, I could flip a coin. That you know, but <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, uh, I, Matt, I, I Matt don't want to jump right uh, into it. <laughs> sure, I don't want to. I don't want to discount like what General Naksoni did, right? I mean, the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center, uh, the Artificial Intelligence, those all came under his watch. So, like, you know, we were already driving in in a, in a pretty good direction. Uh, but you know, Cybercom and those things are now, I think, going to get pushed to the forefront even more. Uh, and I think that you know globally, not just in the DOD, like cyber, cyber attacks, like all of that is, is a hot button buzzword across the, the globe. So, you know, I'm sure you're going to see it a little bit of everywhere. Yeah, I think, I think it, uh, General Hayes' uh, experience in the 25th and 16th Air Force is, is just very telling. And I think the DOD in general is becoming more comfortable with offensive cyber operations and discussing them. And that is great because that when you can start talking about that a little more openly. You can start thinking throughout your organization how to integrate that into your into your uh, planning and and operational like the larger concepts. So it doesn't stick sit off in a corner the way EW has or the way Sigint has. Like you know, hey, it's those guys over there. We'll go ask them. And I remember the an IO that you know the 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 infamous line was you know let's sprinkle some IO on that that some our leader had said there and and it it you stop thinking that way when you have leadership and you can integrate those capabilities into your mainstream uh planning and thinking process yeah. i also think it's going to lead to some interesting like you know potential like ethical discussions like okay how much offensive is okay like where is the line like because we know that it's happened on a consistent basis to us all the time you know and i'm sure that we're doing some level of that as well but but how much is okay like how much are we going to admit to I think that those discussions are going to be interesting in the next few years for sure. Um, there, there was another article that caught our attention um, from Bloomberg government, um, and it was regarding Turkey, and it's about them signaling a preference to retain Russian S-400s uh, in, uh, in F-35. Um, and, and, and then, of course, we just uh, Congress just approved a bill to send them F-16s, and there's a continual... Uh, F-16s in exchange for their vote for Sweden to enter NATO. So uh, obviously there's a lot going on from Turkey's perspective. Obviously they're trying to bolster their uh, military and security profile in that region with everything going on. Um, it was, but it was an interesting uh, I- interesting article that came out in terms of where how they're positioning themselves. And so, I, Matt, I wanted to bring you in and kind of talk about what how that article – uh, what issues that raised in your mind as you read that? Yeah, so I think it's a, I think it's one of the, one of the few times I think that pretty publicly, um, you know, a, a partner or, or an ally has basically said, well, you know, I want to buy from left hand and right hand kind of stuff. I want to buy from both people. You know what I mean? Um, and you know, here in the United States, we're pretty, usually pretty hesitant to to allow that to happen, and, and we're proving that again here too, right? We're basically saying, hey, if you don't go to this four hundred, like we're not going to provide you F thirty five stuff. So. You have to kind of pick one. Um, I, I think that there's probably some political answer somewhere in the middle that's going to happen. But, uh, but you know, I, I think it's a pretty fun discussion. And, I'll, you know, I also recall, you know, a few years ago, we were pretty tight-fisted on who we would share F-35 with anyway. Like, you know what I mean? Like, 
you had to you had to go through a lot of security measures and make a lot of agreements to to even buy into the program. I mean, there were a lot of countries that did, but you know the 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 invite list was long, but the actual people that you know got invited that actually participated in the program, like there was a whole lot of agreements they had to agree. So this is not like super surprising to me. I just think it's going to be interesting to see how kind of uh, how the development plays out. Did do yeah. you? Is it your thought that because of this position that they taken with the S four hundred that um, was kind of the impetus behind the the movement of the F sixteen purchase, or what role did the F sixteen purchase play in this controversy between S four hundred and F thirty five? I mean, I think I think it was a an offering. You know what I mean? Like a little tit for tat. Like, hey, we will we will provide a little information, a little of this, but you know, big long term. This is we want you to to, to ditch the S four hundred. So uh, we'll see. I, th- I think um, when I look at this, if you look at it over the last few years, it looks very surprising what we're doing. And But if you look at it, take a longer view, at least in my mind, this is Turkey being Turkey. It's always played a role at the nexus of Europe, Russia, Middle East. It's always, I mean, it's centuries of this, right? And uh, and so, so this is, and Matt's point, like, you know, they do like to have that flexibility they don't like to be completely in the hands of the West, uh, even though a lot of their military equipment comes from there. It comes from licensing agreements with Western countries. Um, but here they are, you know, potentially playing a negotiation role in Ukraine, Russia. They kept themselves at least somewhat open to that, even though they're supplying drones to. Uh, they've actually, I think, opened up a factory for their um, drone or their UCAVs in Ukraine, and then you have the Middle East, obviously, in there. They want to see themselves as an export, uh, uh, viable export channel into for their companies into the Middle East. So they have, if you've tracked their industrial base over the past like decade, they have EW companies popping up all over that place. It used to be just a handful of companies there, uh, like Havelson and some others. And now there's just a bunch uh, out there doing all kinds of work. And so they've really built up, they've had a good strategy to build up their industrial base. And so when I look at this, I think, okay, they want to keep the F-16 pipeline going because that's important to them. They're not going to export that anywhere, but they a lot of their Air Force is built around the F-16. The F-35 is something that it it, it is desirable, but but it's going to tie them into NATO a lot more because the F-35 isn't the F-35 uh, unless you can, you know, you have AWACS and a whole bunch of other capabilities to, to integrate with it. And Turkey doesn't necessarily want to go all the way down that road. So it's hedging at, on the F-35. Um, so there's just a whole bunch of things. I do think it was, you know, somewhat unprecedented that they bought an S400, but at the same time, they, it's just them being them. This is, if you, it's just their, it's just the way that they think about it. It's not the way we think about it. I think our concern about the S400 is completely legitimate when you throw F35s in there. Um, but it's, it's, it, it's, it's, I just see it in a longer continuum of, of, they're actually very consistent with what they've been doing. It's just to us, we're like, wow, you, we're going to share the F-35 with you and you're going to get the S-400. That's just a non-starter for us. So so it's just two different positions. And I think it's I just think where are, we've agreed to disagree, you know? <laughs> it's kind I of think the, there are two other parts. To your point, like, I think Turkey would like the F-35, but I don't think that that's what they're most upset about. You know, the way, when I read the article, the two things that I think they were more concerned about, one is they're losing a significant export business of, because of, they were making a lot of parts for the F-35. And we're like, yeah, we're not even going to buy them from you. And then we had also like made an agreement to sell F-35 to Greece, who's, you know, been a, a historically long rival right right next door to them. So I think I think those two things are maybe even larger, like in the whole scheme that just giving, you know, the F-35s to Turkey. So I think I think those two things are also significant. So I wanted to, you know, obviously the region extremely volatile these days. Um, and, we, and I mentioned, you know, in the previous in our other in our regular podcast, you know, we're we're not going to talk a lot about uh, the ongoing conflict between uh, Israel and and and, uh, and Gaza, uh, but I do want to touch a little bit on what is what's been going on uh, out of Yemen with the with the uh, Iranian backed uh, Houthi uh, uh, movement and and some of the attacks that they've been they've been. Uh, Executing as well as there's been some air some strikes from the U.S. and allies to 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 counter that, um, and, and U.S. seems to be you know we're obviously 
very closely involved in that. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on kind of what you see developing in that. It's another proxy war, proxy conflict that we're getting involved in. Um, it's both to uh, help, you know, obviously not help, but uh, affect the the pace and the, dur- the duration of the Israeli-Gaza conflict, as well as all the other players, you know, when we bring in Syria and, and Russia and Ukraine, they all are somehow connected in terms of destabilizing all the players in a certain way. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on, on what you're hearing, particularly from the capabilities that the Houthi movement are, are showcasing uh, U.S. in terms of their use, use of unmanned systems as well as our, our retaliatory strikes? And I'll, I'll start with you, John. Sure. I, I think, so Iran is behind a lot of this and Iran has... Uh, been watching us for 20 plus years because we've been operating on their borders on the east and the west. So they've they've got a not a great look, but a, a good look for not being involved in the conflict. They've been watching us. They've been watching how we operate, the equipment we're using, collecting signals where they can. And in the, in that same 20 years, they've built an EW industry. And and it it we we tend to underestimate them, but they're because they're embargoed and, you know, we think, oh, they're stuck with, you know, old air forces and old, old equipment. But, but they're, I think, an incredibly good example of what we learned in Iraq. The commercial market is a radio shack of, of, of resources for anybody that wants to build an EW capability. Not necessarily first tier, super networked, you know, high end GAN powered ACE and jammers, but credible, good enough for territorial defense good enough to export with probably very low uh, learning curves that you don't have to, you know, train up somebody for too long. Um, and, 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 and then they've exported this to their, to their proxies, uh, proxy forces around the Middle East. And they've used those and they've got, it, it's, 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 it's very telling to me how well that strategy has worked for Iran and how well they've actually been a, a problem for us. And so there's there's that factor going on, along with I think a gap in our capabilities in EW where we don't really have enough EW to to be able to match those challenges in an appropriate way. So so we have, we struggle to go up the escalation ladder with them. Um, without we, we have these gaps that we have to jump from from a you know we just have we have we don't have as many options and we don't use EW well enough because we don't have enough of it. Uh, the right kinds to match them for what they have. Um, so, so, Matt, do you have anything to add, that you want to add to that? Yeah. So, I, I, I want to first talk about the you know the twenty years of watching. I think that's a, that's a great point, but I also think it's important to understand like why that's happened and how that's happened, right? So, like when you look at Google Maps, like it's a very congested small piece of sky and a small piece of ocean that we're dealing with, like. There's no way that we can continue operations in the Gulf where we have for a very long time without, you know, being basically on TV. Like, can watch us what we do every single day. So, so I think it's it's very easy for them to understand our pattern of life. Um, and I think that I think the other part that I think is significant is the gap, right? We typically, um, so you know, when I, we were studying adversaries before, when I was back in the Navy, we would talk about like the way that the Russians preferred to build missiles. They would build a hundred, hoping that fifty worked. You know what I mean? You know, they, they would rather buy them cheaper in bulk, whereas the, the American approach is, I'm going to buy one and I'm going to spend whatever it takes, but it's going to work every single time. So that, that difference in mindset, I think, is significant here, right? So I think Iran is fighting, you know, through their backing a cheaper war, and we don't have cheap, cheap weapons. It's not how we do it. Like, we've spent, you know, a lot of money to get top-end stuff, and really what we need now is a whole bunch of cheap drones, cheaper missiles, you know, things that would, and that gap is significant. We don't have that. Uh, when you start looking at, you know, what we're using to shoot down drones, like we're using very advanced weapons that that's because we don't have that lower end stuff. So uh, I think that's definitely a, a part that's a, well, a factor. And, and to that point, you know, it would seem to me that, you know, based on some of the, the early tests that have been done, uh, this, you know, we might be seeing a little bit more, you, you know, discussion about the application of directed energy weapons, uh, in the region, high power microwave, a lot of things that aren't that you know are kind of replenishable because it's you're not dealing with um, ammunition. 
there has been a lot of talk about you know some some of the progress with director energy, and this was you know obviously a topic that uh, you know we wanted to address. But in my regular show, I think the next episode. Um, or, or sometime this month, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember the editorial calendar. Um, but this month, you know, I'm going to have uh, Dr. Long on from Sweary talking about high power microwave um, and some of the the, the, the benefits of, of of investing in that technology. Is is there an opportunity here to kind of use this conflict or this scenario as a way to kind of push the need to operationalize DE capabilities at a more rapid pace? I, I think so. I think that what is very telling to me everywhere, from Ukraine to to uh, to Jordan and 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 to uh, to the Red Sea, all the places where we think the world's on fire, is is that a we are not able to at a at a at a low enough level uh, find emitters and find out whether and then and then and then counter that. So, so, so we're not, it's just basic EW, right? We just run, no enough ES, we don't have enough EA. We've got high end EA and we've got, we've got vivid joints and, 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 you know, all kinds of stuff, but not enough of that low level. And so yeah, from Matt's point, they, you know, these are, these are cheap wars. These are, you know, drones are, are going to become a mass production issue, right? This is where, you know, quantity has a quality all of its own. And and it, to, to to quote that old saying, and so, so so we don't do that well, right? We we're, we're always prepared for that near peer fight, and not the low end fight. This is you know like, but 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 a regular warfare has huge EW requirements in it. It's just it's a knife fight, and not you know long range. And so so you know, how many counter UAS systems can we get out there? How much ES can we get out there? I I, I think that almost everything you're seeing when you're you know, is starting to get a little nervous about how much GPS jamming is coming over the border and, you know, from Russia in, in, in some of their exercises. Well, yeah, they're, they, they don't need GPS, you know, they're, 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 they're happy with scorched earth on the spectrum there, you know, and, and again, same with the, the Houthis, they're, they, they don't have bottomless magazines. They're fighting a kinetic fight. We can use EW and especially directed energy to take that advantage away from them. But to me, it's that, I don't know how you do the study, but it's it's what we don't have there. It's the it's the missing rungs on that ladder that 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 are that are problematic for us because we we have such a conventional mindset about it. We're not thinking yeah, about so I it. Saw, I saw an article the other day which I thought was super interesting. So the phalanx or the closing weapon system, low RTDT guy on ships. Historically, that's been like last d- ditch, like defense only. Like if that thing's going off, things have gone really poorly for us. You know, but I saw a pretty good discussion that they're thinking about turning it offensive because it's basically, you know, just a high-powered radar-controlled Gatlin gun that's going to be much better than currently things that we're employing against these drones. Like, I think that we're finally starting to open up our aperture and look for other, like, options on how to do this instead of, you know, wasting all the expensive stuff. So I think, you know, I think directed energy could be the next way. And You know, how, how do you do that? What's that look like? I, I don't have the answer to that, but certainly options. Well, and, and there was an article on Navy Times a couple of weeks ago. Um, it said, amid Red Sea clashes, Navy leaders ask, where are our ship lasers? Um, there's been a, you know, there, you're, you're starting to see that, that that urgent need kind of pop up among the the, 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 the leaders in the Navy that they, they want this capability. It's, it's, it's been really too slow coming. Um, but, uh, you know, any, any thoughts on, on that article? I know we sent that around. Um, it's from the Navy Times on Monday, January 22nd. Um, there was also consequently a report released by NDIA, NDIA uh, on the directed energy supply chain um, and some of the recommendations. And it reads almost like an EW report, quite frankly, because it talks about training and leadership and dot mil PF and all these other uh, major focus areas that directed energy needs. Uh, there's a real opportunity here for the EW community to kind of help bring DE into a more operational context. I think that I think the EW community is waiting to be asked, and I think we need to step up and well, say, yeah, we, "Here's we, how we, we shouldn't wait to be asked." Though I, mean, I know we should, exactly that's my point. It's, yeah. yeah, we 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 often wait to be asked, right? If something we 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 have a especially we just have a, a mentality that we're going to go in and be the heroes sometimes and. Need to go and be the pain in the butt. You mm-hmm. go say, hey, you know what? We have an answer for this. 
we have the people that are going to operate these systems. We can deal with the legal side of it. We can, we can, we, there's so many pieces that have to go in place. And, and I think back to 2016 and like when it, we did an article, I think it was then on the USS Ponce and, the, and the, the first laser that got deployed on there. And what was interesting was everybody's been focused on the laser and the capability and, you know, is it, is it powerful enough? They actually found tremendous utility from the IR search and track, the IR sensor on that because they could see things they've never seen before because we don't really do a lot, huge investment in thermal imaging on our ships. And because we always think we got spy one, right? We got we got things that'll see so far out that we don't have to worry about things that can get in close. But in the, you know, in the in the you know, in some of these narrow waterways, a lot of things get close to you and you don't even know what they are. If it's nighttime, you know, wooden dow comes across your bow and you're sitting there in your, you know, your your uh, you know, Arleigh Burke cruiser <laughs> destroyers. So you're you're just you're, you're that that the this this again that situational awareness piece. That we haven't invested enough in, that's that's key. Before you start shooting anything, whether it's kinetic or non-kinetic, you got to know what it is and where it is and what's around it. And and we don't even have that investment going. And we haven't really, again, we haven't just taken the spectrum and said, hey, we need to see here in these in these bands. We need to see in these bands. We see at this distance. We haven't done all that. And so again, the the the, the thing I thought that was just interesting about the Ponce was it wasn't just really the laser that was the main benefit because they're only using that about 001 percent of the time. You know, oh, oh, one percent of the time. It, but the thing they used all the time was the mm -hmm. was the IR sensor. Yeah, you know? but, but I think, a huge but deal. I think that you also made a great point about lasers. You know, why don't we have them yet? Because we are still fighting that you know near peer war, right? The laser doesn't shoot far enough. It's not accurate enough. Like you know, we did. We have not said, hey, all I needed to do is shoot down some drones and accepted that that level of requirement is maybe much lower than what we're actually trying to produce. So you know, I think that's certainly part of the discussion. Um, and, and, and any closing thoughts, uh, gentlemen, before we, we we wrap up? I think, I mean, this is something that, um, like I said, I'm going to be touching on in a future episode here with Dr. Long from Sweary on HPM. Uh, John, you know, you mentioned it'll it'll be a topic in, in March's, uh, March's uh, Jet uh, magazine. Um, so there will be opportunities to discuss, but any closing thoughts on on this topic or, or, or other things that we've discussed uh, in today's episode? My my just thought is it's 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 the old lesson of of we are not we as a community need to reach those leaders and tell them what we can do, show them what we can do, run the studies, run the modeling simulation, run, you know, all the things that just that we in the nineties EW suffered significantly because we didn't fit we couldn't measure effectiveness very well. So MOE was like a a way to beat up BW and say, what's your, what's your MOE? I've got a kinetic weapon here and I can measure that, but I can't measure the guy running out of his radar shack because a harm's coming at him. They can't do that. And so we need, we need to change the mindset for all the non-kinetic weapons, cyber, EW, and, and, and directed energy. Directed energy and cyber have much clearer effects to measure. EW is harder to measure, but we, we need to be Again, not wait for someone to come to us and then we play catch up after the problem has already been found. We need to say, this is what you can do with this set of capabilities. And we're not, I just feel like we're too quiet about that. I don't see mm -hmm. enough happening that we wait for the demand signal instead of pushing supply out there and saying, hey, here we are. So. All right. Well, well, well thank you, uh, Matt and John, for joining me here once again on From, from the Crow's Nest uh, subscriber edition. I really appreciate you taking time. Uh, we'll have you back on uh, the show again in, in the near future. We're going to rotate around several different guests uh, here in the coming uh, weeks and months, and so that uh, you know, we'll but we'll ha definitely have you both on in individually or together here in, in the future. But thank you for joining me. Thanks, yeah, it was fun. So well, that will conclude this episode of from the Crow's Nest Subscriber Edition. And once again, these AOC member subscriber-only episodes of our From the Crow's Nest podcast uh, will, will be released twice a month. Uh, members and subscribers will be able to participate in the live recordings of these episodes. Uh, and again, if you're in, in the audience, uh, you, we are not recording your participation. Uh, you are merely able to watch and then, of course, engage in the chat. Um, but, but for a limited time, these episodes will be available to everyone. 
who already enjoys our podcast. And once we get the subscriber paywall uh, finished and set up, uh, these episodes will go behind that paywall and you will either have to be an AOC member uh, to get your free subscription or uh, pay a small fee of $2.99 a month uh, for this additional content. Uh, it's really geared though, you know, as we as we build this out, it's really geared to, uh, you know, engaging the audience and, and, and we want to be able to a- answer your questions and have it a place where you can come in and put your comments in, uh, in, 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 a, in an open forum and we can discuss them. Uh, but I want to thank everyone for joining me here today on our From the Crow's Nest um, podcast and also uh, again uh, i want to thank matt and john for joining me Uh, don't forget to review share and subscribe to this podcast uh, where we always enjoy hearing from our listeners so please take up some time to let us know how we're doing Uh, that's it for today again you can follow me on twitter at ftcn host thank you for listening Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.